everybody. Uh, John and I are back feeling like garbage and ready to cast. Uh, <laughs> today, we are continuing our American Canon series with Edgar Allan Poe. This is the first time we're handling literature on the show, so that's exciting. And he's an author near and dear to both of our hearts. Um, so we're excited to get into this with you. I think before we get into Poe's biography, I want to like just tell a little bit story about how I got into Poe, which is because of the Simpsons. So every year, I don't know if they still do this, they would do a Halloween special, which would have all of these vignettes. And when I was a kid, one of the vignettes was Lisa reading The Raven to Bart, where James Earl Jones does the reading and Homer plays the speaker of the poem. And a weird version of Bart is The Raven. It's amazing. I'll link to it in the show notes because I found it on YouTube. Somebody at The Simpsons was a big Poe fan because they also have a version of The Telltale Heart. I remember watching it and being like, whoa, that's, that sounds cool. Like, that's weird. Like, like many kids, I experienced The Raven and was like, this is amazing. Apparently, all through Poe's life, you would get accosted by children that would go, nevermore, to him on the street. <laughs> um, and I was like, this is, this is wild. Like, what is this all about? And that was around the time that I had gotten my library card. And so I went to the library and I, in, in the kids section, they had a volume of Poe's poems. And I remember pulling it out and some other kid had drawn, it was a hardcover, had drawn like a replacement dust jacket for it with this incredibly shitty looking Grim Reaper that was done in like Crayola marker. And her, but it wasn't signed. There's no explanation of who did it. And I remember it being one of those moments when you're a kid and you're like, man, like there are people who've come before me, people whose lives are like totally separate from mine in a way that I could never access. You know, and of course I tried to read the poems to no avail. I mean, I was like fucking eight or nine. So there, I wasn't, I just wasn't at the level where I could assimilate that. But Poe was really my first experience of seeking out something for myself and discovering it and trying to figure out what I might like in terms of the world. And there's also this sort of lovely attachment I have uh, to his to his work of sort of the civic beauty of the library and the fact that library has existed before and will continue to exist after you and getting the first feeling of that as an emotional experience, even if I couldn't turn it into an intellectual one when I was a child. So I'm really excited to talk to about him like 20 years later. John, what about you? Yeah, I can't say that I have any good Poe story specifically because I feel like my first experience with him was reading Telltale Heart in school. So I probably, I feel like, yeah, at the end I was like, oh, wow, like good reveal, like that's cool or whatever. Yeah. But it was still like a school book, so I couldn't really attach to it in any way because at that time, in my head, there was like school literature, which could be interesting, but it was never something I would go to on my own. And then there was like sci-fi novels that I would find at the library, which were just interesting, like for their own sake to me. Mm -hmm. So it took me a while to come back to the stuff I read in school and be able to look at it as something like for its own sake, valuable and not just something that was forced on me in kind of a like weird language arts class. But <laughs> I definitely had the same experience looking at the, in the back of those library books where they'll stamp the due date. Yeah. 
they don't do that anymore, but the, they still have them back there despite that. And But back then, that's still what they did. They would stamp it when mm-hmm. I would go as a kid. And I remember thinking the same thing, like, oh, each of these dates is another date when some other different person from me was, like, looking at this and getting something out of it, you know, and now here I am doing that. And there are definitely, I spent a lot of time in the library as a kid, so I definitely feel like it in so many ways kind of colored my world, just like. Yeah, I spent so much time. I did the summer reading program every year. I, you know, it's where I found music because they had CDs there. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I used it, to rent like Star Trek: The Next Generation VHS tapes. Yes, two that's at a time perfect. And, like, yeah. go home. <laughs> I remember renting things like maybe I'll put this in the show notes too. There is a single camera, like one room movie version of Sam Shepard's True West with the original cast of Gary Sinise and John Malkovich when they're really young at Steppenwolf Theater. My library had a VHS version of that. You can find it on YouTube now. And I remember watching it like as a kid, you know, as a kid. I don't, I think my mom was a big Sam Shepard fan and went to all the Steppenwolf stuff in Chicago for it. But I remember her showing it to me when I was like dope. 12 and I was just like, oh my God, like <laughs> so intense. Like this is crazy. You know, you don't, you get so used to things being these big budget things. The fact that there can be so much intensity in a single room with a single camera is not something you're used to, to feeling. So I think that that was important for me too, you know? And then my second experience with Poe was reading um, a cask of Amontillado uh, <laughs> in middle school. And I remember being like, Oh shit. Does he just like wall that guy? Like, Oh shit. What? <laughs> I'm reading this in school. This is awesome. <laughs> that I feel like that was a distinct Poe feel was like, I'm reading this in school. Like, yeah, this doesn't feel like it has much in common with, you know, uh, what was it like to kill a mockingbird or <laughs> this is like a different kind of thing. Yeah. It's a very or, different thing. And Oh man. Another thing the library had, which I'll mention because it's very Poe is the feeling that you could just wander around and like discover some sort of forgotten like a bit of knowledge. Yeah. Like ancient and forgotten lore, like pulling out some old, like weird book and opening it up. And there's like, you know, lithograph prints of like knights and stuff. And you'd have no idea what it's about. Cause you're like a kid. You're like, man, this is like people, you know, like this is a neglected piece of some kind of cool lore. Mm-hmm. And I feel like just wandering around the library as a child, I sort of developed like an appreciation for that as an aesthetic experience but also as you know now that I'm older and I actually read you know those things it's like a habit in a way of gaining knowledge is sort of like wandering through mm-hmm. piles of it and trying to like cull from that the same thing with like a used bookstore i think oh same, yeah same feel yeah great that's one of my favorite feels at a used bookstore i mean in reading the stories that we read so we read the mask of the red death and we read follow the house of usher I, it had never occurred to me what an impact Poe had had on Borges. But oh, yeah. in reading, especially Mask of the Red Death, I was like, oh, oh, here we go. And talk about somebody who's obsessed with the idea of old tomes, who was a librarian, who understood the rarefied occult magic of walking through the stacks and picking things out. I mean, that was Jorge Luis Borges, for sure. I recently read Ficciones and... I remember when I was reading that and now when I was reading Poe, the, the thought I had both times was like, 
this is sort of like way better Lovecraft in a way. Yes, I've like, had the same feeling. Like not to like knock Lovecraft or not knock him, just to be neutral about him, but like at a pure he, level of style. Yeah, at a pure level of style, I think he was still pretty pulpy um, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. But when you're reading Borges, especially the one about the like fictional world, fictional language where everything's purely ideal. Mm-hmm. And like the whole thing is told as some madman's like attempt to like find these documents that prove the secret of organization. It had the same feeling that I think Lovecraft often goes for where someone is like barely uncovering this thing, mm-hmm. but like I think to much greater effect and much like the, it was much quieter flawlessly. Yeah. Much quieter, more, you know, Lovecraft is very interested in the phenomenological experience of that. Yeah, and what it does to the intellect, and it's like Borges is interested in it the other way around. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I've similar things in Poe as well, but I think mm-hmm. it's an interesting kind of literary lineage there, um, like yeah. American Gothic or something, but not American Gothic. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, we should we should get into that now and talk a little bit about Poe's life. He is born in 1809 uh, in Boston. His father leaves when he's three. His mother is like 24 by the time he's nine or something like that. She's very musical, very charming. She dies of some sort of fever or something like that. And he he and his brother are split up among families that would never truly accept them. Interestingly, when Poe's older, he reaches, he finds his brother, his long lost brother. And before they can connect, his brother dies of alcoholism, clearly a family disease. But guess how old his brother was? 24. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah. So we have a man who lives an incredibly haunted life. His wife dies at 24. His wife has the same middle name as his mother, Eliza. He spends the night sleeping at her grave. When she passes, he's inconsolable. Um, But as a young man, he was frankly prone to self-pathologizing, as I certainly was. He thought a lot of himself. He was brilliant, though no one seemed to recognize it. He was the laughingstock, in some ways, of the established literary world of America at the time. He was always trying to basically destroy Longfellow Emerson referred to him as the jingle man because of how sing-songy his poems were. And he was totally ruined by several economic crises that overtake America at various times. He's living in a very different world than Emerson is one far more plugged into their urban life. Um, And it seems like more directly into university life, at least for a spell. He goes to UVA, which was created by Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson designed the curriculum there. It was his gift to the Commonwealth of Virginia so that it might one day rise to the heights of King's College, now Columbia, and Harvard and Yale up north. Unfortunately, just because of Southern society, these were more social institutions than educational ones. William and Mary and... UVA often had problems with drinking, gambling, and shooting guns on campus, especially UVA with the latter. 
uh, at dueling. one point, dueling, yeah. At one point, Jefferson, John Jay, and James Madison all ride to UVA together because the dueling and shooting stuff gets so out of hand that Jefferson needs to give the students a talking to. And he gets up there and he gets so distraught and so overwhelmed, he can barely get a few words out before he bursts into tears. And <laughs> Madison and, and John Jay look at each other like, oh okay so madison gets up and like improvises like a reprimand to give the students right and of course that didn't solve the problem eventually the school tries to take away all the students guns there's a gun riot and then at the 10-year celebration of the gun riot a teacher gets shot to death on accident by students shooting guns off so uva is a wild place but interestingly you can get a sense for how young america is when there's time there Jefferson dies July 4th, 1826. Poe arrives on campus that September, and he studies under Madison. And one other founding father, I can't remember who, I believe he studies uh, Latin. Poe ends up being quite proficient. So we can get a sense that America is very much in its youth. It's very undecided. It's still a backwater. Its economy hasn't yet stabilized or become powerful, as Poe would find out firsthand. He joins the military for a spell. He works on artillery. He does okay. The other uh, soldiers like his poems and things like that. But he does have delusions, perhaps not delusions, maybe they're just aspirations, of grandeur. And he's always getting in a fight with his foster, his foster father about money, about who he sees himself being in the world. His letters, if you read any of them, especially in the 1830s, are like, very self-pitying and like a case study in being pathetic. And yet he churned out tons of stories, tons of poems. He was against the grain of literary nationalism at the time, which we will get into later when we do sort of a duel between Poe and Emerson. But this is somebody whose life was beleaguered by tragedy. And he offers something of a biographical reading of his work in that his work is incredibly chaste, though it is often amorous. I think Auden said something like um, Poe's love life was little more than falling into laps and playing house, oh. um, <laughs> which is just like so brutal. <laughs> um, you know, uh, so he, he's also often a divisive figure in those who inherit his legacy. William Carlos Williams is one of his greatest defenders. America barely recognized him as a talent. We didn't put a headstone at his grave until 26 years after he died. And the only person of prominence who was attended that ceremony was Walt Whitman himself. Man. So here we have this bastard son of American letter. It's really funny because if you go to like UVA now, they have a big plaque up where Poe would have stayed. If you head out to Fort Monroe, where he was stationed for a while, they have a huge thing all about his brief time there. You know, places that he barely was and that barely wanted him are now <laughs> yeah. like, this is the Edgar Allan Poe spot yeah. where he once sat. And like, we now lay as much claim to him as we can for his five months he spent in this one room. You know, it's yeah. very funny it's to see like no interest in him until he's dead and famous. And then it's like, oh... Oh, the great, you know, like, we always loved that guy. <laughs> it's, a, it's such a common thing, too, mm -hmm. but you just bring that to mind. Yeah, I think overall, I, I love the, the fail son aspect to him mm -hmm. because I think that is, like, 
I think in the world of like, we'll say intellectuals or something, there are the like successful stars and there are the sort of beleaguered fail sons. Both yes. end up sort of posthumously having importance, but their lives are quite, quite different. Like you had Herodlin and Hegel, both friends in college, seemingly of basically equal stature in terms of who they were when they were students. But then Herodlin ends up going insane and living in the house of a literate carpenter who just takes care of him for like 45 years. Not just a house, it's a house in a turret. Oh, yeah, and it's like a tower, right? Yeah, and people come and visit him while he's going mad because that's something you would do in Germany at the time. You'd go on pilgrimage to see all mm. the famous poets. And so there are tons of fragments of him just as a madman being like, oh, you're here to visit me? Just writing these insane, like, you know, <laughs> quatrains and then just giving them to people. So they're scattered <laughs> all over Germany. <laughs> so, yeah, and you have, like, that. And then on the other end of it, you have Hegel, like, basically just the greatest man in all of Germany head of you know his he's like the chair of philosophy or something yeah and another fail son just beneath him is schopenhauer who's always angling to you know but schopenhauer of course is sort of a a soul brother to poe in many ways oh yeah definitely um so i just think that's interesting because i think you have a similar thing going on in the american authors we talk about Mm -hmm. some are respected in their time uh and they do well enough financially that they can kind of live certain kinds of lives and be certain kinds of people. And then you have people who basically had to struggle for everything they got, even if they were in their own way half the time, you know, that's kind of how it goes. But there's a lot to relate to in Poe for me. <laughs> like uh, the, the stuff with his, like the kind of stuff he would say to his adoptive, you know, his like guardian or whatever, that was like, just like, you never did enough for me kind of stuff. Like you never supported me or just, acrimonious bitter ingrateful yeah like completely (laughs) ingrateful like and the amount of times that that man like reconciled with him just sort of you know you almost feel like he just wanted him to like be a normal person and just you know yeah like why can't you just fucking be normal i mean i think poe was certainly an alcoholic and displays all of the distortions of the soul that you recognize an active and sometimes sober alcoholics and, you know, eventually that wrecks his relationship with his foster father, who, understandably, after decades of this, just can't take it anymore. Yeah. They never get reconciled again. And, and Poe is left to his own devices, toiling in frustration, never being able to launch the magazine he wants to launch, always being outshined by other literary lights. The Raven ends up haunting him in his life because it is reduced to a children's poem as I mentioned earlier. That's like his cherry pie. Yeah, 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 exactly, (laughs) exactly. Just a very frustrated existence. The only person I can think of that has a life as openly tragic as his in American letters, I'm sure there are others. John Berryman, Mm. who was also just beset by tragedy and plagued by his own alcoholism and mental illness, but was also successful. The mid-20th century American poets, there's a great overlap between being successful and being an absolute train wreck in a way that just didn't seem to be in the offing in 19th century America for whatever reason. Probably just not enough university posts to go around. 
I mean, yeah, Ted Redke. Uh, Ted Redke was a nightmare. I think John Berryman eventually had to like. I think he was drunk on Bennington campus or something like that. And every time they tried to kick him out, he would get his rifle and sit on his porch. And eventually, Berryman or Lowell had to come and like slowly be like, "Ted, come on, it's okay. You gotta go, man. It's like <laughs> you can't stay Berryman, here." Were his readings like rock concerts? Yeah, poetry basically. Yeah, around I feel like the that time, was the mood too. Yeah, Poe was the same, right? Like eventually, he starts giving these. Lectures, one of them, Eureka, which is his big pantheistic endeavor, totally ends up alienating everyone, both because it's dry and because, as you say, John, it becomes evidence for his madness. Yeah, he espouses the Hindu doctrines. Yeah, he was, <laughs> he was deep in the Upanishads, apparently. Or like Plotinus. I'm sure it was a bit of both. Yeah, I'm sure it was both. So what do we do with Poe? How do we think of him? When we were talking about Emerson, we're talking about looking at nature and trying to figure out how did he create this American sensibility. In other words, how to create something novel. Emerson seems to think that's possible. He's committed to the idea. I very much respect him intellectually for that. Poe is not so convinced something new is possible. He doesn't feel the obligation to set his stories in America per se. He's interested in the old world. He's interested in the ancient. He's interested in the way the past can never let you go. The difference between life and death in Poe is almost strictly parallax. It depends on which eye is open and which eye is closed. I think that's a great introduction to the fall of the House of Usher. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which is a wild story. I think it's like you say. um, Well, in his youth, he spent some time in England. I don't remember how much, if he was on the continent or not, but there are a lot of old English scenes, which I think definitely you can tell sort of continue to haunt his imagination ever since Usher. There are a lot of references to books in Usher, and all, almost all of them are real. Except for you know. one at the end, the yeah. red thing, which he creates. So maybe we should, for those who haven't edited, I've been doing this thing, I did this for Emerson, where I put like links to an open source version of whatever we're reading so that people can do it. But um, for those who haven't made the time, uh, which is totally fair, life is busy, uh, the general premise of the fall of the House of Usher begins with a man who receives a letter from an old friend, Roderick Usher. Roderick Usher is unwell. He hasn't spoken to this man or been in contact with him since they were close friends as boys when Usher's family lorded over the land. But they were an incredibly inbred, very aesthetically sensitive and concerned, uh, long-standing family that lived in a decaying house. There's a lot of doubling that happened. There is a tarn, a lake, in front of the house of Usher that the narrator looks into that casts back the image of the house. And in a similar sense of doubling, the house of Usher comes to refer to not just the physical abode and all of its decayed magnificence, but also to the family in all of its decayed magnificence and horror, as we find out. The narrator comes to spend time with Roderick Usher, who is plagued by an unnameable family illness that makes him very, very sensitive and mad. And he seems to tie it to the strange emanations of the physical building of the house. And his twin sister is dying as well of another mysterious disease that has a cataleptic 
element to it, which makes her go rigid, almost corpse-like. And while the narrator's sister dies, casting Roderick into further madness. And then one night, during an incredible whirlwind, Roderick storms into the narrator's room, panicked. And the narrator, to calm him, decides to read him this story. And every time something loud happens in this story, there is a loud sound within the house. But he convinces himself it's not true until the third time it happens. And he walks over to Roderick, who's sort of lolling in a chair, whispering, muttering to himself crazily. And Roderick basically admits that he has accidentally buried his sister alive and tuned her. Uh, in some vault downstairs and has been hearing the sounds of her trying to get out for days and she has now finally succeeded and is coming to kill him, which of course she does. The narrator, so freaked out, bolts from the premises and on his way is struck by a beam of light that overtakes him. He turns back to see whence it came and through a fissure that seemed ever so faintly to split the center of the house of Usher, a gleaming red light from the moon pierces. And eventually he watches the house split in half and sink into the tar. And that is the fall of the house of Usher. <laughs> yeah, it's the setting is vaguely European. Mm-hmm. Um, if only because he makes a, a reference to a medieval time of which part of that house was in use, which... Well, it made me think, okay, so we can't really be in America. Like, not much about this feels American. Another interesting thing was Roderick has a pretty big library Mm -hmm. of exactly the kinds of books that you'll find Borges interested in, too. Like, weird occult stuff. What was the City of the Sun by Campanella, which was like a utopian book written in the Renaissance period by a Dominican monk about a society inside of the sun that was supposedly perfect. All, I feel like in the same exact way that Borges uses this stuff, you create this literary context for a bookish character. Tell us what they read, and we so, like we can then infer like what kind of person they are. And I think Poe goes to an interesting length to do that with the kind of books that he has around or mm-hmm. other descriptions of him. And then at one point when he's about to read the romance that he reads at the end where the noises that happen in the story concur with the noises happening in the house. He says, you know, I picked it up and I said, oh, let me read you your favorite book to calm you, even though I knew it was not his favorite book because it was far too, you know, concerned. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, too concerned with real things and not ideal enough for -hmm. for the way, like the the sort of lofty places his mind liked to roam, so to speak. And it creates, it's such a like thick, aesthetic to me you feel it like in the air or something Mm -hmm. well there's so much of the house of the usher that you do feel in the air when the narrator Mm -hmm. arrives he looks at it and there's this strange sort of subtle miasma emanating from this decaying mansion when he's in three paragraphs about how horrifying it is to look at yeah and when he's inside there's the sense that the lights extend only create almost like how do i want to say terrains of illumination which at their outskirts are just totally blackened by the darkness contained therein it's a spooky place interestingly when the tempest erupts it showcases this miasma it becomes undeniable roderick's convinced that it is part of the building the narrator can't fully admit this to himself there's something too strange about it 
it seems to combine the scientific and the occult. And he tries to materially explain away the Tempest, but he can't when it happens. Yeah, it's so similar to like other, you know, like Dracula, where there's the supernatural and then there's all these attempts to apprehend it using the like then current kind of like scientific explanations. So there's a weird glowy light stuff all around the house. And he's like, no, Roderick, no, that is merely some gases playing a trick or, you know, like sort of things like that, which are sort of common currency at the time. But it definitely one of the over arching themes of Poe is this attempt to like rationally come to grips with really horrifying stuff. And you're, it's almost like you're invoking a prayer when you bring up measurements and like phenomena. Yes. Like you're trying to insulate yourself from the fact that the world is far more terrible than you can comprehend, capable of far more than you can imagine. Mm -hmm. You live in this sort of bubble that you've created for yourself, which you call normal life. And the invocations and prayers which you use to maintain that seal are like references to meteorology, you know? I mean, I think we live downstream from that. And so our version of that today is sort of genre inaugurated by the Blair Wish Project, which is the found footage. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see this in Frankenstein, which is an epistolary novel that has some evidentiary quality to it. So does uh, another epistolary novel, Dracula. Juno Diaz uh, teaches that at MIT, I believe. And he says that the reason he teaches it is because it's so laborious and it's, you know, you know exactly how big the door frame is or whatever. You know, it's also spelled out. He goes, but that's, once it does that, it's so that you believe it when the monster walks through the threshold. of the-, the amazing thing about Dracula is that the sort of climactic battle against Dracula is a long drawn out, document thriller where they're Mm -hmm. like searching for housing deeds because Dracula has stashed Transylvanian dirt at a series of houses around London and they now need to find these houses but in order to do that they'll have to examine deeds records of sale they'll be hunting with their like reading glasses and stuff and then they go like find the dirt and like you know purify the dirt or whatever it's amazing how much of the book is taken up in like bureaucratic documentary research mm-hmm. and i i totally i think you're absolutely right or juno diaz is absolutely right that that level of like boring granularity makes the world like, you know it makes the world justifies th- it yeah there's a certain level of that which i think you find in a lot of a lot of fiction and like novels especially maybe starting in the 18th century but it's definitely it's the inheritance of the great writers of novels in the 19th century of populating your narrative with enough things that have nothing to do with the narrative Mm -hmm. that you find yourself in these like believable sort of imaginal worlds. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think initially the object was just to bring you into like, you know, someone's peculiar aesthetic understanding of their own life or different lives around them and the way that those narratives interacted But then the cool thing you have with the Gothic is the same technique used to bring you into something that's actually sort of supernatural and horrifying, but they use the same building blocks to allow you to understand. It's sort of commonplace, but like suspension of disbelief takes place almost flawlessly with that. And I mean, one thing that I kept thinking about while reading this is the way in which darkness is where truth arrives for Poe. 
And we can contrast yeah. that with Emerson, right? So for most of human history, nature has been horrific because you get lost in the woods, that's where you die. So many of the Brothers Grimm tales are about that. It was where danger lives and stuff like that. So there is something intrepid about Emerson's insistence that nature becomes the thing that furnishes you. Now, he might have an idealized sense of nature, or one gets the idea that that's the case. When we look at the Hudson uh, Valley School, as we talked about last time, we realize that so much of those paintings rely on a quality of light. I imagine mm-hmm. that was true for Emerson as well. That that, the daytime is when nature could fully express its beauty to you. To you. That is where you notice the oneness of yourself with nature and the things around you. Oh, not so much. It's, uh, you know, William Giraldi says that he quotes Oscar Wilde in saying, give a man a mask and he'll tell you the truth. Well, for Poe, oh, that mask is dark. That that is where you are most naked, most vulnerable. And so that is where the truth comes from. And the truth is severe, often horrifying. There is a negative transcendence that seems to insist that the past is somehow innocent. Death can never be totally fought off, and it can never be fully experienced. Always the undead or spiritual afterlife, ghostly presence that's there. And it's interesting that Baudelaire, the poet of negative transcendence, uh, translates so much of Poe's work, but insists on a quality of the new, which I think... Poe himself was skeptical of. Yeah, there is the symbolists in general. There's a lot of like fun affinity, like Paul Verlaine, just writing about watching everything kind of fall into the sea. Like this is the end of everything. You know, I'm watching like the collapse of rational civilization or something is kind of the feel of a lot of his poems. And I think in general, it's interesting how Poe, I don't, I wouldn't say that like Poe totally informed the like the decadent poets. but he definitely, they found like commonality with him, I think, in an interesting way. Because it's like you were saying, for Emerson, nature is like bathed in light. There's a kind of glory to it. And I think in a lot of those paintings, there may occasionally be like a lone grizzly bear or something, but it's like distant enough that you don't feel danger from it. You're able to have a vantage on these scenes that's sort of immaculate. One of the things about Wordsworth in the English countryside is that like they had killed all the wolves by that time, yeah. I think. And so <laughs> that it wasn't helps. that, yeah, it wasn't like that dangerous to head out and just like appreciate certain things. And I definitely, I'll place myself between both positions and say that I find a lot of affinity with people who have like an aesthetic and maybe um, intellectual or spiritual. They find it like, you know, it's enlivening or inspiring to go hang out in the woods or like to go to some sort of picturesque kind of sublime mountaintop or something. And I think there's a lot there. But I think on the other side, when you look at a lot of pre-modern writings of any kind that attempt to come to grips with that, there's always an awe because it's a place of life and death, I think. But it also just like it's everywhere, you know, even depending on where you're living, like maybe you live in the city or something, but yeah. for many people who are living in the farm or the village, like it's not that far off in a lot of ways. It's right there and you often have to enter it. So like traveling over to the next village, you might not come home and it might be because of rabid wolves or it might be because of, you know, a band of robbers, but there's something of a tenuousness to the, like to your life when that's your environment. 
And I think there's an appreciation of that. And so while there's appreciation, there's also terror. And I think they kind of are like two sides of something that's sort of mm-hmm. like that's the dialectic or whatever you yeah. want to say about it. Yeah, Whereas it's the, the, the right intention. I think you get that, that kind of gets split into different personages where you have Emerson embodying one side and someone like Poe embodying the other side. And I think more broadly, Emerson is kind of like a genuine hope and aspiration for a civilization in terms of America that hope for a progress almost, you could Mm -hmm. say. There is a progressive vision there. And I think it's more broadly something common to general like the heritage of the European Enlightenment, whether or not Emerson agreed with every single stream of thought that that was part of that, there is still like this broad idea of we have the power of rationality, we're going to subdue everything, even ourselves and our own societies, and like make them better, plan them rationally, scientifically, expand, have more opulence, more... Yes, the rationalist Jacob and Colonel that we talked about towards the end of... um, Exactly. And I think Poe provides the gothic underbelly to that. The group of people who, you know, call them the counter-enlightenment, or I wouldn't say they're exactly coextensive with the the romantics, but there's definitely, like, some romantics have an affinity with that movement, but some people are not entirely overlapping. But there's this feeling that this large rational structure is being built over the top of like an ancient darkness or something. And that ancient darkness is both us, but it's also completely inhuman at the same time. And it's always threatening to erupt into this. I think it's like when I was saying, like we have this idea of normal life. And I think for Poe, the eruptions of the fantastic and the horrible into normal life and your attempts to subdue them with measurements and theories and reciting something from like Newton or something that in itself becomes like an interesting religious move against those demons. And I think you can see these interesting ways in which Poe sort of is like apprehending the fact that like rationality has taken over certain parts of like the religious function in society. And it's constructing a sense of life that religion used to inform in a lot of ways. Like you live in a world that's really bounded by what you knew religiously. Now you live in a world that's really bounded by what you knew scientifically. But I guess Poe is telling us like there are still demons and there is still this like irrational aspect of life that's not tameable. And that always threatens to sort of consume the structure that we're erecting in the same way that Usher kind of like is absorbed into the lake. You know? Yeah, totally. I just think it's interesting to look at Poe for the aspects of that kind of... There's like a bunch of binaries maybe which get identified when people start to look at like what was the birth of modernity? Um, How is that like conceived of by people over the course of like the past few hundred years? And the things you see that sort of continually arise, um, which are by no means unproblematic, you know, or like accurate descriptions of things but like you'll get in Weber disenchantment um, or like you have the sacred and the profane, which are explanatory categories that are kind of invented around the time that these things are happening and that industrialization has taken off. And interestingly enough, uh, if you look at 
Talal Assad's book, Formations of the Secular, he'll show you that if you look at any French writing of the medieval period, the sacred and the profane are like not categories that are ever used to explain anything. Everything's thought of in terms of like demonic or angelic mm-hmm. or saintly, or like they have a completely different sort of thing going on. But you get those sorts of things. You get modern and pre-modern, rational and irrational. You get like dark and emotional versus like high, uh, lofty, airy kind of intellectual. You get like a series of oppositions which are sort of used to construct this kind of idea of like what is the world we live in now. And so someone can use them and say like, well, we used to live in a dark world where we didn't know anything, nothing was rational, and there were demons behind every corner. But now we live in this rational world where everything makes sense because we can measure it all and talk about it. And thus we've expelled the demons and realized that none of them are real. This becomes maybe you could say like hegemonic discourse or something. Mm -hmm. It's like scientific Victorian kind of thing. And then you get the immediate upswelling in that with like the castle of Otranto or things like that. The immediate rise of the Gothic and the like, well, you guys are like the scientific stuff you guys are talking about is really like a self delusion and there are still like dark things that you can't apprehend or control mm-hmm. with these measures of empiricism and like rationality and that kind of stuff. You know, I'm not really ready to like state the thesis yet, but I do think that like Poe's doing something pretty interesting with that. Even though he's not setting his stories in America, I think it's totally in an American context. He has a very American way of imagining Europe. You know, I think mm-hmm. that might be a good way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, let's talk about the Mask of the Red Death. <laughs> yeah, Mask of the Red Death, which is a great place for us to end because, man, is this perfect for America in the age of COVID. So I did the recap of Fall of the House of Usher. John, do you want to walk us through the general premise of Mask of the Red Death before we get into it? Sure. So there's a, see a prince, Prince Prospero? Yes, uh, Duke, uh, I believe. Duke Prospero, a little nod to Shakespeare there. I think The Tempest is one of his favorites, actually. Duke Prospero is living in a time of plague, and it's swallowed about half the population or something like that of wherever he lives. So he's decided to call up all of his favorite courtiers, knights, uh, attendants, and so on across the land, and they're all going to come together and seal themselves away in um, you know, a special, like, palatial kind of estate thing that he's built so they all head out there the doors are barred um they're welded from the inside shut so that no one can get in and no one can get out and you then have this really interesting long description of the way the apartments are laid out and how there are windows built so that the light from torches on the wall casts strange kind of magnificent or ghastly shadows upon the rooms through these like colored windows, depending on where you are, there's kind of a different sort of fantastic aesthetic to the room. A series of these is laid out. The final is the most horrifying, dark and unsettling and people rarely spend time there. Most of them are more delightful. And in the final one, I believe that's also where there is a large clock that every hour it rings its bell and Everyone who, in the meantime, are gathered in like kind of endless frivolity. It's just daily and nightly partying, pleasure of every kind, food enough for years, I guess, and really no 
no reason to think of the outside where people are still being consumed and dying. You know, it's like a literal plague. You would probably see bodies piled up around the streets and stuff. But inside of this hermetically sealed building, there's kind of an unreality to it and a sense of never-ending party. But every time the clock strikes a new hour, the bell rings and everyone stops and is kind of like suddenly in terror. And then they all, uh, he says the musicians, they stop playing and then they all look at each other and they say like, oh, we aren't going to become afraid the next time that bell rings. That was silly of us, wasn't it? And they go back to playing. But then every time they stop again and there's this kind of sense that the clock is gesturing towards something which they'd rather not think about, much like the final apartment, which has the sort of most horrifying appearance is the one that they mainly avoid. And all of this is ascribed to to Prospero's sort of eccentric aesthetic tastes, which he had when constructing the building. So we end up in kind of the main hall uh, in the middle of a reverie. And a strange figure appears in a corpse shroud with a mask on. And the mask almost seems to perfectly be the face of, you know, like the pallid face of death, uh, like a corpse. Except most horrifyingly, there are spatters of blood all over the shroud and the face, which is that's how people die when they get the red death is they, I guess, start coughing up blood and they pass away within 30 minutes of contracting it. Um, So everyone's kind of like aghast because, you know, I think any extravagance would have been totally acceptable to these people. They're painted as like the utmost decadence, but somehow any acknowledgement of the red death, you know, the plague, that is the only thing that's verboten. Like you can't do that. And so everyone's immediately horrified. Duke Prospero commands them to seize whoever this is so they can find out who has committed, you know, the greatest party foul. And no one has the courage to do it. And so he eventually kind of regains his own sense of courage. And he's like, fine, I have to like stop this affront to my authority. So he pulls out a dagger and runs towards the figure who starts scurrying backwards away from him towards the doorway. And he eventually catches up with him. It's stricken dead immediately. And the Red Death is there. And everyone is consumed, you know, in very mm-hmm. short order. And it's inaugurated by when the ebony clock strikes midnight. And so its tolls are more frequent and you can't ignore it or wish it away like you can the last time. So, I mean, first and foremost, the first thing I was talking to John about this before we started recording, the first thing I thought about was the Trump administration basically being like COVID's that not, not that big a deal. Some probably didn't even think it was real. And then they had that gathering and celebration of Amy Coney Barrett's. uh, installment into the Supreme Court, and one guy there was like a super spreader, and everyone got it. You know, that's how Trump got it, or whatever. Obviously, nowhere near as fatal as like whatever this horrific red death thing is. But the arrogance of power and the ludicrousness of decadence certainly harmonized with our present moment. I really loved that the one thing you couldn't gesture towards was the red death because mm-hmm. he does. I love that he took the time to say that like they would have been unfazed by the corpse outfit if it hadn't had the specks of blood. Yeah. Like anything else would have been fair game, I think, which is, you know, that's like perfect as a just like as a description of this sort of utterly decadent elite class where it would be like, yeah, you know, like anything goes except for talking about, oh, like you can't bring COVID up in this meeting. Yeah. <laughs> The description of the apartments is what really got me because that's where I could really feel the influence of Poe on Borges. Oh, yeah. I couldn't conjure any of them from memory, but 
but it's just the general layout, which is labyrinthine. Yes. Strange. Baroque. Baroque, yeah. Very idiosyncratic. Mm-hmm. You know, belonging to the old world, having this almost like occult energy emanating from it. Each room seemingly having its own idea that you can't really place, but you sort of know, like, you know, there's a, like a thought behind every aesthetic decision, seemingly. Mm-hmm. Everything is to make an effect. Yeah, and, and for Prospero to, for his own dalliances, his own interests to um, be what does him in. And that mm-hmm. I thought was quite nice. What's interesting about the final room is that it's black with a sable carpet and a red window. That a Duke would even think to make that room feels very on brand for Poe. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that the grotesque is always a part of whatever's happening, you know, that can't be avoided, that there is this big ebony clock in that room that disturbs all of the guests. You know, we're just never that far from death. There's just, you can't avoid the horrible things that are going to happen to you. There's an overriding sense of what happens when you read Poe. Yeah, and I I like how he shifted the, I guess, the side of danger. Because um, in Usher, it's so like, it's so supernatural in a way. Like the, the Ushers are just fated in some way. Mm-hmm. They're fated by their own belief in their fate to some extent that in itself causes their collapse. He sort of hints at the fact that the Usher Scion is, he's a hypochondriac and a lot of his maladies are from the fact that he fully expected to have a malady. And so he was thus living in a world of like psychosomatic malady. Yes. He entombs his sister alive because he thinks that he's going to, he's afraid that he's going to, so he does it. And then she kills, you know, like, the whole thing is kind of a construction of like terror going before itself, like mm-hmm. the terror creating the terror, whether or not it would have already happened. That's kind of the thrust of that where I like how in red death, what he's doing is it doesn't feel quite as supernatural. Like there's still that element like personified plague guy for sure. But I like that. It's almost um, it's being identified with the natural in a way. Like the plague is just something that happens every hundred years, most parts of the world or every couple hundred years. Like it's a common reoccurring source of, you know, kind of really horrible amounts of death and like mm-hmm. breaking up of families and of towns and things. But it's not, at least we'll, I'll talk about in Poe's time. Um, I think in Poe's time, disease would not be seen as like magical or fate or anything like that. Well, necessarily. Certainly less so anyway. Yeah, less so. You would more have had people who would be saying like, well, it's, you know, like this or that uh, current medical explanation. So he's even kind of shifted the side of terror to something that would feel fully like that, like the current scientific rationality would feel that it had like full explanatory power over. Um, And the reason that it's sort of like an upswelling of horror is not because it's this completely unusual thing, you know, like with Usher, it's not like a whole strange setup, strange circumstance. It's the fact that the people inside of the fortress estate thing um, have completely insulated themselves from the real world, from actual reality. Like they no longer live in an actual reality and quietly outside of the walls of that building actual reality is going on the whole time um i think it's really sort of quietly implied that this is the case 
like with, with a few lines, you know, that people are still out there dying or whatever, but they kind of live in, in almost like a world of their own imagination and pleasure. It's like a and simulation of life. Exactly. They're living in this weird simulation of the lives that they used to lead, but like with everything amped up to a hundred and the source of terror here is not really that the red death has found this like personificatory like figure to come in. It's the fact that like what they banished has returned. The thing that they thought that they could escape and leave to other people has returned and destroyed the dream they were trying to build for themselves, mm-hmm. which is like a completely different move. But I mean, the parallels with our lives today are so numerous and blatant. Yeah. No <laughs> it, it almost doesn't bear remarking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I kept thinking about when we get these descriptions of them and their simulation and endless rollicking. There's this moment that I think is best captured in the Lattimore translation of the Odyssey when Odysseus comes back. And there's this moment where he's sort of confronting the suitors who've been having a gay old time, like, (laughs) you know, feasting or whatever uh, off of all of his land and trying to get his wife, Penelope. And there's this moment when they laugh at him and the description is so horrific. Their jaws unhinge. Their heads look several times bigger. They almost, it's hysterical. They can't keep themselves from laughing. It almost troubles them as well. You just slip into this moment of the weird. Mm. You know, it's as if there are these people that have been so disconnected from everyday life, so unmoored from basic social facts and status or whatever, living through this decadent interregnum of their own making. Mm-hmm. And it begins to warp the reality around. And I think that is so much of what I felt come through in The Mask of Death. And it got me thinking that what I value most about Poe, having read this, especially if we're going to compare him to Emerson, which we'll do in a different and more explicit way in our next installation, is how powerful suspicion is. It's not even skepticism. Borges is skeptical. Mm. Yeah, that's what makes Borges almost a little bit more postmodern. Yeah. He's skeptical that there could be these overriding narratives, whereas Poe seems more destructively suspicious of the genuine articles as they appear. And in that way, Poe is the opposite side of the coin. You know, if we think that um, America has always been a country of con men and suckers, Poe wasn't having any of it. And I think in some way that's, that might be what makes them truly ours at the end. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into it more, but like one of his big problems with the way that critics, American critics treated American literature is he thought that they coddled American writers who were not worth it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's almost like a Nietzschean objection. Like this does not deserve to endure so yes. like why do you hold it up yeah you know like <laughs> so yeah he's like that's a question of politics not aesthetics and i love the severity of it despite the fact that poe himself his whole life so romantic in his own way would puff up especially untalented and very pretty female poets <laughs> in his bless own him. views yeah um, <laughs> bless him yeah bless him is all we have to say bless, bless the lad so We hope you guys enjoyed that. That is our second in the American Canon series. And we'll be meeting Poe again and Emerson again at a later date. So stay safe out there. And thanks so much for listening.
Stay down.